you want to grab a Bible and turn to the book of Genesis, we'll look at chapter 32. I'm going to read to you verses 24 through 32 once we're all there together. And I will ask God's blessing first once we get there. Okay, let's pray together. Dear Father, we give thanks to you for yet another opportunity to look into your word together. I praise you, Lord, for the fellowship of the saints. What an encouragement it is to my soul. What a difference, Lord, between being home alone and going about my day and then coming and being with the fellowship of believers. What a great gift, Lord. I give thanks to you for it. I ask you, Lord, that you would aid us now as we want to investigate your scripture. We want to be edified by it, and we need greatly to have our hearts warmed, to be guided and instructed and correct, corrected, rebuked, and trained in righteousness. Lord, we need to behold your redemption in Christ once again, that our faith may be, might be provoked and activated, and that we once again might proceed in purification from sin through the power of Christ alone. Oh God, would you grant to us a special faith during this time? I have confidence in you, Lord, that you have guided us to this passage and that you intend to nourish and feed your people through it. And that is my only confidence. Oh, God, give us help, I pray. Give us light. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, read with me. I'm going to start here. This is Genesis 32. I'll read verses 24 through 32. Listen as I read. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, that is, the man saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched the socket of his, Jacob's thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of his hip. This is the word of God. May, may God bless it for us. May he open our hearts and ears to receive it. Brothers, let me begin by telling you that we often... <laughs> fail in the Christian life because we don't understand two things specifically. 
One, we often fail in the Christian life because we don't understand well who we are as the people of God. Secondly, we often fail in the Christian life because we do not have a clear expectation of how God deals with us. You hear those two things? We often mistake who we are. We often don't know what to expect in God's dealings with us. And so we often fail. We sin in the Christian life. Now, if you do not have right expectations about how the Christian life is going to go, you're going to get tripped up. Things are going to happen in your family and your work, your relationships in church or what have you, that are going to stumble your faith. You're not going to be ready for it because you don't know what to expect. So what we're going to do here is get some insight from Genesis 32 about who we are as the people of God and how God deals with his people. And I'll begin by telling you, I, I don't think so now, but when I first considered this passage to preach on it just a few weeks ago, I thought of this text, like I've always thought of it, as a very strange text. I hope this text strikes you as bizarre, really, at first. Um, this is an unusual story, and I can say I don't think it's at all strange now. I, now that I've spent time with it, I think it's remarkable how well it fits the rest of Scripture. But what you actually have in this text is one of the initially strangest ideas you're going to find in the whole Bible. Um, I just like to refer to it as overcoming God. This text is about overcoming God. And as soon as you hear that, you should feel like you've almost heard something that might be blasphemy or something like it. Well, I assure you, I don't intend to preach blasphemy. Um, but I do very much intend to show you here about overcoming God. And then I'm going to exhort you to do it. And so perhaps that will pique your interest and we'll stay together here. This is a remarkable text. I want to begin by just putting the text in context. How, where does this story occur? Very quickly, let me begin by telling you uh, about Jacob. Jacob is one of two brothers. He has an older brother named Esau. Many of you will know this story, but just bear with me in case anyone isn't familiar with it. Jacob is the younger brother. Esau is the older. And Jacob and Esau's relationship is, ah, shall we say, strained. Right? Jacob is a very shrewd con man. He is a liar. He is a cheat. And he deals with Esau so as to uh, cheat Esau out of Esau's birthright as the firstborn. He lies and deceives his old blind father, which is really a disgusting, cruel thing to do, in order to steal the blessing that rightly belonged to Esau. And after Esau's had a little bit of this, he decides the proper course of action would be to kill his brother. And that's what he intends to do just as soon as the days of mourning for their old father Isaac are over. Well, Jacob's a little too smart for that. And so Jacob, together with his mother, come up with a plan for Jacob to escape death. And Jacob flees to his uncle Laban's home and property. And there he's with Laban for something like a few decades. And he ends up taking two of Laban's daughters as his wives. He works for uh, Laban and actually becomes fairly wealthy. 
to the point where Jacob is ready to leave Laban's house and set up on his own and provide for his own family. Laban doesn't want that because Laban has eyes in his head to see that God has blessed Laban's house for Jacob's sake. So in order to get away, Jacob actually has to flee in secret and take his wives and his many children and his large household and their property and get away. Well, uh, Laban discovers what's happened and he pursues Jacob and family and catches up with them. But before Laban catches up with him, God appears to Laban. And, and to, 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 put it, to paraphrase, it says, you better watch the way you deal with Jacob. You'd better be very careful whether you say to him good or evil or, or you'd better be careful. Laban gets the hint and so he confronts Jacob, uh, states his grievance, but that's about all that Laban can do now that he sees clearly that Jacob is under Yahweh's protection. Not much else can happen. They end on peaceful, if tense, terms and Laban takes off. Well, Jacob is now getting near to the area where it's time to confront his brother again. After all these decades, Esau. And you recall the last time that Jacob and Esau were together, Esau had made a firm resolve to kill Jacob. So Jacob is afraid. And he sends a message to Esau to get the ball rolling and say, hey, it's me, I'm back, I'm coming through, just wanted to let you know. And the return message is very disconcerting. Esau is coming with 400 men. Now, I don't think he's coming for a warm welcome. I, I believe that he's coming to kill Jacob and his family. I think that's the intention Esau starts with. It's not how it goes by the blessing of God. But it is in right there. As Jacob has received this message, Esau is coming with these 400 men. And Jacob knows very well what this is likely to turn into with all of his children, his wives, his property. He is terrified. And he starts to arrange his family in such a way that they'll be able to deal with the attack the best they can, which isn't going to be very well. And then Jacob finds himself alone in the middle of the night. That is when our story occurs. So see Jacob in this extremely tense, anxious, fearful state. This is when he meets a man in the dark, whose face he probably really can't see. And he wrestles with the man all night. And the man doesn't prevail over Jacob. And so, since the man doesn't prevail, he dislocates Jacob's hip apparently just by touching it. The word in Hebrew can be translated strike, but try and find an English translation that will translate it strike. There are a few out of maybe 15 or 20 I consulted. They almost to one say he touched it. But why would you use that word in this context? Surely this is a violent context. It sounds like he struck the hip and knocked. Well, the, the English translations go with touch. If that is the best translation to go with, you need to envision these two wrestling and the man reaching out his hand and just touching Jacob's hip and it dislocating on the spot. You, you, you start to get a hint of who this wrestler might be. Well, he disables Jacob. He demands to be let go since it's almost daybreak. He wants to get out of there before daybreak. Another indicator about who this person probably is. This is a private revelatory scene. This 
wrestler doesn't want to encounter anybody but Jacob, I believe. And Jacob says simply, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I will get the blessing if it kills me. And at this point, it looks like it might, right? He's already lost his hip. The man changes Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel, blesses him, and this story really ends with Jacob saying, and what's your name? And the man says, why would you ask my name? And then it just drops, just cliffhanger, you know, like you split to another scene and you think to yourself, what was that? I mean, what, who is it? Who is it? Well, that is the story. The next day, of course, Jacob again shrewdly manipulates Esau. And by the blessing of Yahweh, the meeting goes absolutely better than it ever could have been expected to go. All is well. He and his family, Jacob and his family, will not end up slain at the hands of Esau. Okay, that's the story. So now, again, just to remind us, this text is going to give us insight into who we are as the people of God, how God deals with us, and what it means, what this strange phrase could possibly mean of overcoming God. So let's ask the text four questions to determine that. Here's the first one, and I'm go, I go from simple to complex. The first question is very easy. Who is the man? First question, who is the man? And it's just as obvious as could be, it is God. This is the angel of the Lord. In case you were wondering, I'll give you Hosea telling us who it is in Hosea 12, verses 2 through 4. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. I'll just read it to you. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. There's no question who the wrestler is. This is God in the form of the angel of the Lord who comes forward in the Old Testament several times to move forward God's redemptive purpose, to reveal God to his elect people. The text includes several indicators that this is God. Jacob says that he saw God face to face and yet lived. There's no question that this is God, and I could give you about four or five other indicators. I won't take the time to do it, but you see them there. That's the easy part of this text, and the rest gets kind of complicated, but I think in a very edifying way. The first part to this is that the wrestler is God. Well, what's the second question? My second question for the text is this. What is the meaning of the blessing that Jacob demands? and which God gives. What is the meaning of the blessing? And someone might say in their own mind to me, what do you mean, what's the meaning of the blessing? It's a blessing. It's a blessing, Dave. Blessings are simple. We know what blessings are. I wonder if you do. Blessings, blessing is actually kind of an interesting and challenging theme in Scripture. What do you mean a blessing? If I raised my hand right now and, and gave you a blessing, what would it mean? And what would it do? What if uh, some unbeliever that you know happened to bless you? They said, God bless you. Would that mean something? Would it have power to do something? What's the difference between when a man blesses and when God does? What does it mean when a patriarch or a priest blesses? 
When, when, when Aaron and his sons blessed the people with that blessing they were prescribing, does that mean something or does it actually have power to do something? Those are the kinds of questions you ought to ask as you think through the, the biblical narrative and, and, and try to discover what does blessing mean? I'm going to give you a quick, very quick, in fact, I'm really not even going to give you the survey. I'm just going to give you some, some points about what you get when you survey the book of Genesis to understand the concept of blessing. First, in Genesis, if you're asking what blessing means, the, one of the, the most important things that you're going to see right away, and you will continue to see through the book of Genesis, is that blessing is often tied to fecundity. Fecundity, that word means the ability to produce abundant offspring. God blesses the animals, the birds, and the fish so that they can produce voluminously lots and lots of fish and birds and animals. God blesses them and gives the power to do that. And one of the first things you have to see right away is when God blesses, you, you could just say this is a powerful word of construction and fecundity. Yes. It, it actually creates the thing that it calls for. Yes. That's what the blessing of God does. It, it's omnipotent. can't be stopped. It's not exactly the same thing when a man does it. Think then of how God blesses Adam in the same way that he would be fruitful and multiply. Think of God blessing Abraham. And is the blessing very different at that point? God's blessing upon Abraham, his promise of blessing to Abraham, once again, is tied to what? Fecundity. The ability to produce this large offspring. He's going to turn Abraham into many nations. Abraham will be a father of many peoples. There it is again, this idea of just filling the world with life, with offspring. More generally, you can find that the word blessing doesn't always have to mean lots and lots of babies. It sometimes just refers to God's favor on all that we do, resulting in success and well-being. Uh, when the servant of Abraham goes to find a bride for Isaac, he, he says to them, God has blessed my master in all ways. It's not just that, well, by the way, um, the family of Abraham was kind of having a problem with offspring. So it can't exactly mean that at that point. It means he's very wealthy. Abraham's rich. He has much in the way of herds and money. And so he was blessed in that way. Let me ask you, when Jacob tells God, I'm not letting you go until you give me a blessing, what is Jacob asking for then? I would tell you that Jacob is asking specifically for effectual favor from God effectual favor from God specifically for the threat coming in the form of Esau, but then generally and ultimately in light of the Abrahamic promise of fecundity, offspring, and redemption, a holy people for God that are going to come from Abraham through Jacob's line. I promise you that that promise is absolutely key for Jacob. He probably wakes up with it and goes to bed with it. He's thinking to himself, Lord, 
if Esau gets all the way here with those 400 men and wipes us out, please, I'd love to know, how will that promise come to pass? How will Abraham become a father of many nations then? Well, he won't. The promise will be thwarted. The seed will be killed, gone. And the seed of the serpent will prevail. And there won't be any woman's seed. Well, that's an idea of blessing. And that is going to tie into the next questions that we ask. So keep this in mind. What Jacob is asking for is the favor of God resulting in this immense fecundity which ends up being this special people, this special multitude that belongs to God. Here's the next question. Number three, what is the meaning of God renaming Jacob? <coughs> Excuse me. What is the meaning of God renaming Jacob? And I'm not asking the meaning of the name Israel yet. We're going to get to that in just a minute. What is the meaning of the renaming specifically? Again, I'm going to give you a quick scripture survey to try and answer the question. There are several stories in scripture that concern people's names. The naming of babies, the renaming of individuals, and, and other things. I'm going, to, I'm going to zoom in on six instances specifically where God, not anybody else, but God, and in one case Christ, rename someone who already has a name. That makes sense, what, what, what I'm going to point out to you? I have six of these that are very clear, and you couldn't dispute it. This is God, just like with Jacob, taking a person who already has a name and renaming them. And then I'm going to ask if there's a common thread between them. Well, here they are. First, God renames Abraham. His first name was Abram, exalted father. God changes his name to Abraham, Abraham. The, the, the father of many peoples. It's not just that he's exalted, it's that he's going to turn into many nations, despite the fact that he and his wife don't have any babies. God's going to work that miracle. So God changes Abraham's name, and the changing of the name is in the context of all the fecundity, all the babies that are going to result. Second, God changes the name of Sarai, Abraham's wife, Sarah. And as far as I can tell, both of her names mean princess. It was a little difficult for me to, to, to get much more on that. But that, by, by the way, goes along with the fact that when God changes the name of the person in these six instances, minus one, in five of these instances, there's continuity between the old name and the new name which is kind of interesting. It's not as if God made this absolutely radical or something totally different that had nothing to do with what they were before. No, it actually seems to fulfill and enlarge what they were already maybe going to be, kind of should have been, but weren't. You'll see that a little bit more in a minute. With Sarah, her name is changed in what context? In the context of what he's going to do in giving her baby Isaac in the context of fulfilling his seed promise to create a multitude who will be the holy people of God. It's the same thing as in the context of Abraham. Who's the next name that God changes? Well, it's Jacob. It's our story here. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. 
In what context? Well, I've just told you. There is a threat once again to the Holy Seed. It's the coming of Esau. And in order to get through this, Jacob needs God's blessing to save him, to protect that promise, to make this holy, holy multitude. And in that context, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. What would be the next one? Ami. Who knows who Ami is? Ami. I don't know. Hosea. Hosea's children by Gomer the prostitute. He has two of them. They're giving names first, and then the names are seemingly in the next chapter changed. Their first names are Loami, which means not my people, and Lo Ruhamah, which means no mercy, no compassion. And the names of these kids was in order to communicate to Israel, because of your sin and unfaithfulness, because of your adultery, I am going to disown you as my people. You're not mine. I will not have compassion on you any longer. But then their names are changed. And the idea is that there's a time coming when you will be my people again, and I will again show you compassion, saving mercy. Their name is changed. But listen to the very name, Ami, people. Here we are again. The promise concerns God's absolute insistence he will get a holy multitude. Nothing's going to stop it. It doesn't matter what threats the serpent seed throw out or attempt. Esau can't get it done. Cain can't get it done. The, the king of, uh, who attacked Sodom can't get it done. Sodom can't get it done. Nobody can finally overcome this promise of God for a holy multitude. Well, there's one more. One more name that's changed, clearly. Simon. Simon, Jesus' disciple, whom we know as Peter. Jesus changes his name. Well, what's the meaning? Well, it's in the context of Jesus declaring that he would do what? Build his church. Here we go again. It won't stop. <coughs> God, Jesus insists, I'm going to build my church. Peter is a rock, and how, we won't even get into the interpretation of that, but you, 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 know, you know the conversation that's going on there. And the context is, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Once again, it doesn't matter what threat the serpent's seed attempts, it's going to fail. I will have a holy assembly who will worship me and who will offer a pure incense offering in all of the earth for my name is great in all the nations i will be glorified through this people this holy multitude guys i've already shown you but what's the common denominator the common denominator is this concern it's god's purpose to make this holy people for himself. But look now at how that connects with what I've already told you about the blessing that we explored. What is the blessing? It is really in context the, the, the declaration of divine favor for fecundity, for, for immense population. But not just people for people's sake. These are holy people who belong to God. 
And it is something that God insists he's going to do. Again, like I said, this is in the context of Esau, who wants to attack Jacob. It's a threat to the Holy Seed, but it's not going to succeed. And actually, I just want to, this isn't really part of this sermon exactly. I just want to throw this out there for your, your further meditation. Do you realize that what I'm telling you is the true view of human history? The true view of human history does not concern economics. It doesn't concern military campaigns. It doesn't concern race, and it doesn't concern depressed peoples or anything else. Just whatever any historian would say, well, the proper lens through which to view history is. No, no, I'll give you the proper lens through which to view history. It's the seed war. I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed. He'll strike his heel, he'll crush your head. That is the story of history. It is God's purpose to create a holy multitude continually threatened by the serpent seed. And Christ as the ultimate seed of the woman bringing this thing to an end. God is going to fill the world with his holy images. He's going to do it one way or another. Um, and actually, there's no plan B here. He's, he's just going to do it. And it's going to end up being that every one of his enemies, whether demon or man, is going to see that all of their attempts to stop God's purposes ended up increasing the revelation of God's glory as he achieved his purpose even more beautifully. It's going to fail, and it's going to fail in style. To sum up the point here, uh, number three, the meaning of renaming Jacob is that God is once again moving forward his purpose to create a holy people for himself. So now we're ready to ask our last and what I think is the most interesting question. What does it mean for Jacob to overcome God? I'll start by telling you what it doesn't mean. And this is something that if you read the text quickly, you might you, you, you could miss. It does not mean that Jacob succeeded in physically overpowering God. That's not the point. How do I know that? Very simply, because in verse 25, when the man saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh and disabled him. Okay, now, now think with me for a second. If this man has the power to disable Jacob with a touch, any time that he wants, I'm pretty sure the wrestling per se is not the point. Do you see? How can you say that the man sees he's not prevailing, so he disables him? But if he saw that, <coughs> if he wasn't prevailing, then he could have just prevailed by disabling him. What do you mean, not prevailing? What, what is Jacob, how is Jacob winning this when he ends up disabled? Do you see there's something there that you should, you should stop and go, then what do you mean by prevail? What do you mean by overcome? I'm going to tell you in a moment, but first, this eases the concern that we have as soon as we hear a sermon titled this way. Overcoming God? That sounds disrespectful to God. Well, no, because we're not talking about God's omnipotence here at all. The story declares the omnipotence of God. As soon as God wants the wrestling match to stop, he just reaches out and gives a touch, and his hip loses its mind, explodes, and, and, uh, and the wrestling match is over. There was something else going on that was more important. 
Well, what does it mean? What does it mean to overcome God? And we're going to get Hosea's help again. Pay attention to this text one more time. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He did? I don't see anything in the Genesis text talking about weeping. Definitely seeking favor. He asks for the blessing. What's this weeping? Was Jacob weeping as he wrestled? Yeah, apparently. That's what Hosea says. <laughs> yeah, apparently he was weeping. Well, what does that mean? And how does that connect to seeking favor? Folks, you, can't, you couldn't even be a person who read the Bible and not know what realm we've just moved into. We are talking about prayer. We are talking about the, seek, the calling on the name of the Lord, seeking God with weeping and tears and loud cries and supplications. That, that's what we're talking about. Did you know that Jacob prayed as he wrestled? Did you know that Jacob's seeking of the favor of God reached the level of violence? Oh, and folks, as soon as you, you, as soon as you attempt to see the text this way, the whole Bible unfolds to you and says, yes, that's exactly what I mean. And suddenly this text isn't even a little bit strange. It falls in place with so much in the scripture. Let me give you a taste. Can I tell you about a time that Abraham overcame God? Yeah, there was a time when Abraham overcame God because the outcry of Sodom was great. And God came down with two of his messengers to find out if what he had heard was really true. And if it was true, he was going to roast Sodom to ashes. And he revealed his plan to Abraham because Abraham is his chosen. He's special to him. And when he did so, Abraham got to work overcoming. Abraham successfully worked God down to this proposition. If I can find 10 people there who are righteous, I will spare not just Lot's family, the whole place. This would have rescued like four different cities of the plain. If we could have just found 10 righteous people, they couldn't do that because of the condition of Sodom. So Sodom did get laid low. But do you see what Abraham did? He overcame God. Well, how about Moses? There was this time... Oh, I don't know. Right about five minutes after the marriage ceremony between God and Israel, when the bride decided to commit adultery with the golden calf, and God declared his purpose to Moses. And I don't believe that God, there, there's no deceit here. God intended to go down that mountain and to bring an end to this stiff-necked, wicked generation. And he even told Moses, I'll make a greater nation of you. And then Moses proceeded to overcome God. He prayed to him. He said, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. Just think, what would the nation say? Lord, if you do this, you won't be glorified. Mm -hmm. Moses isn't very human-centered. We need to talk to him about that. He needs to read a few counseling books, I can tell you what. Put that guy through seminary. Maybe we can make something to him someday. <laughs> Moses overcame God, and God was very willing to be overcome 
Now hear me say that. We're going to come back to that. God is very willing to be overcome. And not just for Moses, but for some other people too. I'll give you another one. Amos. God revealed to Amos that he was going to strike Israel with locust plague and wildfire. And Amos said, oh, please, Lord, don't do that. Jacob is so small. How could he stand? And God says, okay, I won't do that. Oh, and I won't do the other one either. Amos overcame God. Well, to sum it up, what does it mean for Jacob to overcome God? It means simply that Jacob wants protection from murderous Esau to fulfill God's promise, which he has purposed in creating a holy multitude, and that will achieve what God set out for in the first place, to fill the earth with his glory images. There will be a world full of God's glory through us men who are holy unto him. And God puts up this minimal resistance to Jacob in his prayer, which Jacob pushes through. He overcomes and he does it with weeping, pleading, prayers. And you could almost say that the weeping and, and prayer of Jacob merges together with his physical struggle. There's no doubt but that the wrestling and the prayer at some level are one. Jacob overcomes God because God is exceedingly desirous to be overcome in this way. And now this answers one last question which I left hanging. Why Israel? Why that name? He could have named Jacob many things. Why did he call why did he use this sound? These sounds rather. And it is simply because as the text says, Jacob is the one who fights with man and he fights with God and he overcomes. Now Jacob had just come fresh from overcoming somebody, Laban. Laban cheated Jacob fiercely and Jacob deserved it. And then Jacob tricked him back. I mean, that's the way this guy does business, unfortunately. And Jacob was on his way to overcoming another man, Esau, who was going to come. And Jacob was going to shrewdly manipulate him under the blessing of God, if you will. And he was going to get through that one, too. But frankly, those aren't even interesting compared to the other concern. Jacob overcoming God. That's what Israel is referring to. He who fights with God and overcomes. What a strange name to give the people of God. What a strange name. Well, here's the conclusion. We are now ready to answer the very first questions I asked. How does God deal with us, number one? And number two, who are we as the people of God? Well, number one, let me show you how God deals with us. He deals with us by becoming our opponent. The angel of the Lord comes out and stands right in our path and wrestles with us. He sets obstacles in our way on purpose in order to invite us, force us to overcome him with weeping and loud cries and prayer and supplication and pleading. I preached in a church once and a woman came up afterwards and said, you talked about begging God in prayer. And I've never believed in that. I don't believe in begging God. Um, I believe she's wrong. I believe she's very wrong. What kind of obstacles? What kind of obstacles will God throw out into your way? How about really difficult parenting? How about a mom who is just exhausted 
with, with parenting our kids. Is that an obstacle? Well, yes, it is. It, it, it threatens the mother's faith. All difficulties do. All, all difficulties threaten our faith at some level. And God is calling the young mother to just keep walking, trusting Christ as your wisdom and justification and sanctification and redemption. Trust. Keep going. And you're going to push through and you're going to obtain the very same blessing that ties in with the blessing of Jacob and Abraham. What about a really hard marriage? That could be an obstacle, couldn't it? Dave, are you saying that God actually gives that to me? That doesn't really feel good or sound right. I think it's more like just that I'm sinful and bad and this is the way it goes. And if only, if only I weren't so sinful that I have somehow managed to escape the sovereignty of God. If only. Folks, did God successfully fulfill his purpose to Jacob? Tell me yes or no. He did. Was Jacob's sin in any way at all existent or operative in the fulfillment of those purposes? All the guy did was sin from beginning to end. God, listen, God brought about his blessing for Jacob through Jacob's sin. Well, then, you know, then let us sin that grace may abound. Only, only if you don't know Christ at all, sure. Sure, if you don't know Christ and you're not really converted, yes, enjoy have a good time. Those of you who know Christ aren't interested in, in following sin anymore. Amen. Not worried about you. Amen. God is going to fulfill his promise to you through your sin. Yes. And I have rarely found another gospel reality that has upheld me as much. My sin can't even stop him. There are many others. Loneliness is a terrible obstacle to faith from the hand of God. Health problems are a terrible obstacle to faith from the hand of God. In order, in order to make you push and struggle and wrestle and fight with weeping, supplications and loud cries. Brothers and sisters, it's not strange that life is hard. It's strange when it's easy. There's nothing surprising about the fiery trials that come upon us. This is exactly what God intended. We are right on schedule. So keep walking. Why? Well, because of the second point here. Who are we as the people of God? Listen. There are lots of important people in the Bible. Let me tell you one of the reasons Jacob is so important. We didn't get anybody else's name in this way. We are Israel. It isn't just Jacob who is the one who fights with God and overcomes with weeping and loud cries and supplications. It is his children. And so we now attach to Jesus through faith are the true fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We are Israel. We are the ones who are named this way. And we are such because God is exceedingly willing to be overcome. He desires his children to come and wrestle with him.
In fact, he commands us to come because I can tell you with certainty that only this kind of faith pleases him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And I'm pretty sure that seeking involves some wrestling. (laughs) The the writer of Hebrews didn't say that, but after, after what he has to say in the rest of chapter 11, I'm pretty sure that everything that's being said today Um, would be right up his alley. Look at the faith of the people in Hebrews 11, which luckily you've just been through. This is fighting faith. This is violent faith. It makes people lose things. It makes people get hurt, not because they want to, but because that was the cost of faith. It makes people overcome death. It makes people go to the death. Makes people wrestle. So we shouldn't be surprised at the next perplexing difficulty that's coming. It's just the angel of the Lord come to wrestle with us. Like Jacob, he is not doing it to hurt us, or at least not the way we think. He's not doing it because he hates us. No, we've passed out of the realm of his hatred. We'll never go back. He's doing it to save us. One more. I have a really strange story where the person who should overcome with God the most fails to. Christ asked in Gethsemane for the wrath of God to not be poured out on him, to find some other way. Did he overcome? Well, interesting. It looked like no, because he died. The wrath of God was poured out on him. But then what does Hebrews mean when it says that he he was heard because of his piety and his weeping and loud cries and tears? And he was saved from death. Did God hear him? He did, a few days later. And then the next question is, does he hear him now, on your behalf? Because Jesus still overcomes the Father, if we want to use that kind of language. He does it now and forever. And his overcoming isn't general. It's not this, Lord, would you please bless the world, or something. It is on your behalf. It's particular to you, the people of God. He's overcoming. Because the Father is exceedingly willing to be overcome. May the Lord bless you. May we be softened to these truths. May we believe. Amen.